Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor of The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we have two very special guests. They're here to talk about their new book, Superpower Showdown, a chronicle of the US-China trade war. Hi, I'm Bob Davis. I'm a senior editor of The Wall Street Journal. I've been there more than 30 years. My name is Ling Ling Wei. I am a China correspondent with The Wall Street Journal. We've spoken a lot on Trade Talks about the various policy decisions that have been made over the last couple of years. Ling Ling and Bob have been covering the daily ups and downs of the saga, and they've got a lot of amazing stories and insights into the people that have been involved in the negotiations. So in this episode, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into the key trade negotiators. You can think of this episode as a sort of follow-up or or a parallel to the one we did with Paul Bluestein. Um, That one was about the negotiations to get China into the World Trade Organization, the the WTO. So back then, it was was USTR Charlene Bashevsky, Chinese Premier Zhu Rongji. They were involved in these very tense negotiations. Today's talks have involved a different cast of characters, but, but some of the themes have been the same. We are going to eventually get into a deep dive of who's who, but there are some names we're going to mention but not dwell on. There is Steve Bannon, who at the beginning was the White House's chief strategist. We'll also mention Peter Navarro, who essentially bonded with Trump over his dislike of Chinese policies. There's this great nugget in the book, which is Trump saying that he has to keep Peter around because he's the only one who agrees with him. There's also Larry Kudlow, um, who's basically was a TV economist, um, who's now head of the president's National Economic Council. Uh, and if I had to summarize his policy preferences, I'd probably say he he enjoys it when the stock market goes up. Now, you may remember that trade policy early on in the Trump administration took a little while to, to ultimately get going. For a while there, there wasn't really anybody who was in charge. Peter Navarro was there, but he'd been sidelined. It took until May of 2017 for Robert Lighthizer to to be confirmed as the U.S. Trade Representative. So early on, Steve Bannon was sort of the one in charge. And his grand strategy was basically to, quote, flood the zone. Let's hit Europe and other steel producers with tariffs, get a deal, get a deal with Mexico and Canada on NAFTA, and, and go for China doing all of this in quick succession. And of course, none of that came to fruition. It was far too ambitious, and they had really no experience with what trade negotiations are really like. Early on, there were some attempts to engage with China. Enter Wilbur Ross. So Wilbur Ross, again, we're back to April 2017. Bob Lighters is not confirmed yet. Wilbur Ross is uh, what Trump called one of his killers, you know, the awesome negotiators that would be able to get the kind of deals that his predecessors couldn't. And Wilbur Ross did seem like he would be well-suited for the job. I mean, he had made money as both a free trader when he had supported CAFTA and helped definitely helped get it through, um, and as a, uh, let's just say, a protectionist when uh, he bought up a lot of steel companies, consolidated them and made a lot of money and was helped enormously by steel tariffs. So he'd seen it both ways, but he was just 
ill-suited for negotiating a deal for the government. At that point, from the Mar-a-Lago uh, meeting, from the Mar-a-Lago summit, they had decided to do a 100-day super-fast uh, trade negotiations they called the Comprehensive Economic Dialogue. And Ross was tasked to lead it. Essentially, what the Chinese did was repackage a bunch of of offers that they had made to previous administrations, which members of Ross's team understood, but Ross didn't. And he was ready to agree to a package of, uh, of concessions that, again, amounted to very little, like on the steel issue, which was uh, near and dear to his heart and the president's heart. The Chinese had basically agreed to move up by a year their their plans to consolidate the steel industry, which they haven't managed to do anyway. But but that's all it was. And he, Ross, made the mistake of, you know, touting it as a Herculean accomplishment. And by the time that they are ready to dot the I's on the deal and sign it, Lighthizer is then ensconced as U.S. trade representative. And he's, he tells uh, the president, you know, this is basically nothing. And the president shuts it down a day, a night before Ross and the Chinese were scheduled to sign the deal. And Ross was going to have them to his estate and, you know, drink to the great success. And what happened was they just came out with press releases where they couldn't even agree on the language in the press releases. And that was pretty much the end of Wilbur Ross as a trade negotiator. Exit Wilbur Ross. Except not quite. It did take a while for the Chinese to realize that Wilbur wasn't in the driving seat anymore. Uh, Ling Ling told us about some meetings between the Americans and the Chinese when, when Trump went to China for a state visit. Back then, the lead trade person on the U.S. side was Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary. But to the surprise of many Chinese, Mr. Ross actually wasn't even allowed to be in the meetings. He was sitting outside of the conference room at the Great Hall of the People, uh, waiting to be consulted. That served as a bit of a wake-up call to the Chinese that, that this wasn't going to be easy. This administration wasn't going to be easy to, to just win over. I remember one of my contacts at the time just told me how mystified the Chinese side was uh, by by those two meetings. You know, it was not in line with the diplomatic protocol because if you change your key lead trade person, you should have informed me first. But no, there's no advance notice, no nothing. And uh, another contact just said, looks like, you know, we, we can't bluff our way out of this this time. After the retreat of Wilbur Ross, it, it wasn't exactly clear who was leading on the U.S. side. In in previous administrations, it had made sense that the Treasury Secretary would, would take the lead. So Hank Paulson under George W. Bush and, and Tim Geithner under Obama both had a lot of China experience, so it made sense for, for them to be the, the point person. Steven Mnuchin didn't have quite as much uh, China experience, but but he certainly wanted that role. The Chinese were happy to deal with Mnuchin because they saw him as a more dovish figure, saw him rightly as a more dovish figure that was more concerned about the state of the overall global economy than dealing with China. But he wound up being constantly 
in a fight with uh, Lighthizer and, and Navarro, who at that point had kind of regained some of his status. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, for Lighthizer and Mnuchin, it wasn't personal. I mean, they, these are policy differences. They both talk about how they get along with each other. And I, I think that's true. With Navarro and Mnuchin, it was very personal. These disagreements and, and divisions within the Trump administration really came to define the, the trade negotiations. From the outside, it looked like chaos. So the way I think about it is, you know, Trump has hired a bunch of people who see China as the existential threat to the United States, is the greatest threat to the United States since the rise of fascism. There are people who believe that, and that would include Lighthizer, that would include Navarro, certainly uh, National Security Deputy uh, Matt Pottinger. And he's also hired people who see China definitely as a problem, don't think that the past administrations have dealt sufficiently with it. But, you know, it's one problem of many problems, and you have to keep it in context. That would be any NEC director like Gary Cohn or Kudlow and also Mnuchin. And, and Trump was happy to have both of them kind of battling over, you know, the direction of the policy. He didn't trust either of them, essentially, is what, what it comes down to. He thought uh, the Lighthizer wing was too hard-headed to ever get a deal with the Chinese, and he thought the um, Mnuchin wing was too willing to make concessions. So he was quite happy to have them both on his team uh, of negotiators, even though that totally confused the Chinese and confused everybody in Washington also. Reading the book, it's obvious just how confused that the Chinese were. Even after it should have been obvious that Lighthizer was going to be the one in charge of the trade negotiations, they kept on reaching out to Mnuchin. And maybe that made sense. They clearly wanted Mnuchin to be the point person. But it really wasn't until December of 2018, when the two sides met in Buenos Aires, that Trump really made clear that Lighthizer was going to be the one who, who was put in charge of the negotiation. So let's talk about Lighthizer. He is a pretty colorful character. He was a trade lawyer, got rich suing Chinese steel companies, and he was a pretty unabashed protectionist. And at the beginning, the book describes that Trump didn't immediately hit it off with, with Lighthizer. Uh, the president struggled to remember how to pronounce his name. Um, he saw him as stiff. But as time progressed, as Lighthizer shared plane rides on Air Force One um, to his Florida home with, with the president, they, they got to be a bit more chummy. And, you know, part of this, I'm sure, is because Lighthizer's a, a savvy guy, understands how politics works. He also seems to have made an ally of, of Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law. Lighthizer was a longtime critic of Chinese economic policy and was he really wanted the USCR job uh, so he could confront China. It had been something he'd been thinking about for years and years. And he looked at China... Uh, Chinese policy making, you know, in terms of the structural issues there. Remember, he had he had uh, defended steel companies for decades and and uh, got all his wealth from that. Uh, state-owned enterprises got one sort of helping hand after another. Steel came in at what would be you know below market prices. So all these kind of structural issues were the sorts of things that he wanted to take on. Where the president, you know, that really wasn't the thing that he was interested in. The president's point of view is is truly a mercantilist point of view, exports minus imports. And for him, 
the most important uh, metric was the bilateral trade deficit. And since China had the biggest bilateral trade deficit with the United States, it was ipso facto the biggest problem. But it wasn't an ideological uh, aversion to China. I mean, when he, when Trump would say, you know, Europe is a bigger problem than China, or Jay Powell, the Fed chairman, is a bigger problem than China, he meant it. It wasn't just rhetorical, because again, his worldview was um, exports minus imports. So where they would disagree was that Lighthizer was the one who was pushing all the structural issues, and in you know all the negotiations. He would, Lighthizer would try to include, would certainly include the the structural issues for Lighthizer, although he would never talk about this sort of thing publicly. I mean, one of his obstacles was keeping the president on board. How could he convince the Chinese that the structural issues were really important when the president really almost never talked about it? So there's a bit of a problem. Lighthizer wants structural changes in China, while the president seems to care most about soybeans. There's a great nugget about how in the negotiations, Lighthizer would always come to the purchase commitments last, just to make the point that he was prioritizing the structural issues. But clearly he faced the constraint that everyone knew what his boss wanted. Okay, I think now we should turn to who was on the opposite side to Lighthizer. The the chief negotiator on the Chinese side, Liu He. Here's Ling Ling telling us about who he was. Liu He basically grew up with President Xi Jinping. They lived in the same neighborhood. Um, they were very tight from very young age. And um, they, they had similar experiences. Both were born in elite Chinese families. Their fathers were communist revolutionaries. And both suffered the same kind of fate um, from the cruelty of the Cultural Revolution. So they have been friends for years. Before President Xi Jinping came to power in late 2012, uh, Liu He had spent years, basically his main job had always been drafting China's five-year plans. So he had been instrumental in the planning, writing the planning documents for the Chinese leadership. But you know, sort of still like a pencil pusher, right? And didn't really have much power in terms of making economic policies. But that changed under President Xi Jinping, who really made him uh, the, the key economic official in China. Liu He was basically the perfect choice for President Xi. He speaks amazing English. He was well-connected at home. And in the West, he was seen as one of these reformers. The Americans really liked that. Now, he was seen as a reformer, great, but reformers in China have constraints. We asked Ling Ling where Liu He's biggest constraint came from. His ties to President Xi Jinping. Because one of the things I think we have done really well in the book is this compare and contrast that readers can get from the WTO era, China's negotiations trying to get to WTO and now. So back then, a big reason why Premier Zhu Rongji was able to push through the changes that needed for China to cut a deal with the U.S. in terms of WTO entry was the support from President Jiang Zemin. He made it very clear that economic development and China's integration with the Western world, especially the U.S., was the party's top priority. 
So he made it pave the way for Premier Zhu Rongji to do that. So this time around, you have a leader, you have a top leader whose overarching policy agenda is the China dream, having a strong unified China that can that is on par with the U.S. and whose focus has been strengthening the party's control over every aspect of the Chinese economy. Liu He clearly had a harder job than Zhu Rongji, the reformer who negotiated China's accession into the WTO two decades ago. So by the time, you know, when Liu He was negotiating with the Americans about reforms, especially structure issues, the bar for reform in China is already get has already got much higher. In order to carry out some of the reforms the U.S. was uh, demanding, inevitably those changes would touch upon the party's core interests. So it became really hard for him to push through. And also, you know, Liu He's personal style and his background, his skill sets also drastically different from Premier Uh, So all those issues have made it much harder for China to pursue those structure reforms now than it was back in the WTO era. So Liu He faced a pretty tough set of constraints. And that's why in in the spring of 2019, the trade negotiations that had seemed to be going so well collapsed. Back in April, late April, I think, late April, early May, there definitely was a sense of optimism in the U.S., in Washington, about actually having a deal. But the mood in China was decidedly different. So Chinese politics, obviously, is very different from U.S. politics. But even for China, the top leader still faces constraints from different interest groups and constituencies. So, you know, when it comes to a big decision like whether or not to cut a deal with the U.S., the leader still can't just decide on his own. He had to run it by the other members of the standing committee. So before the American negotiators came, went to China for another round of negotiations, hoping they could cut the deal, that was in early May. Before that, the Chinese side, the Chinese leadership had a meeting, the top level standing committee members had a meeting. So discussed about details of the the draft agreement so far. And there this, you know, the support for that text was tepid at, at most. So the goal for any Chinese leader traditionally have been for big decision, they wanted to have at least a majority of consensus, right? So they move forward. Otherwise, the political blowback would be just really too huge. These votes of the standing committee really matter. The, the same standing committee had to vote to approve the deal for China to enter the WTO. Back in, during the WTO era, President Jiang Zemin had the same meeting. He also held standing committee meeting. Only one vote no for a deal with the U.S., which was Li Peng. But in this case, three no votes. And the other three, um, yeah, yes, but they still have reservation about deal being too one-sided in the U.S. favor. So you don't really have a majority 
at most evenly split. So in this case, uh, President Xi Jinping, he was the deciding vote. And he himself also got a little cold feet after a European trip where people were murmuring to his ears, you know, whatever deal you have with the U.S., please don't divert your purchases from us. And he had a very successful Belt and Road Forum in Beijing. Despite the U.S. boycott, other countries came and, and celebrated that. And also, very importantly, China's economy had stabilized by that time. So all those reasons combined, it just made the top leader think that time was on my side, not on the U.S. side. In the meantime, you know, President Trump had told everyone that we're in, we're basically very close to reaching a deal. It seems like the U.S. side really wanted a deal. So then President Xi asked Liu He to push back harder. They view that as just another part of the negotiation, right? They didn't really think that's the reneging, China reneging on a already signed document. It's, it's China, it's part of a normal negotiation. You, you know, push back from both sides, you know. So, so that's what happened. But obviously it backfired. For the U.S. side, China had, you know, broken its word. After those discussions fell apart in early May of, of 2019, things got pretty ugly. We got more tariffs, and for a while, the two sides really stopped talking to each other. Now, obviously, we know the end of the story. They they did end up doing a deal despite all of these constraints. And if you look at it, it gives each of the American side a little bit of what they wanted. So the president gets his purchase commitments. Uh, Steven Mnuchin gets something on currency manipulation. Lighthizer gets an enforcement mechanism where basically he gets to decide whether the Chinese are living up to the terms of the deal. Uh, there is some stuff that touches on the more kind of underlying issues, like on intellectual property, and, and there are some non-tariff barriers that get removed. But it clearly doesn't attack all of the structural issues that Lighthizer wanted. It doesn't deal, for example, with industrial subsidies in China's state-owned enterprises. So the idea was that there would be this phase one deal, and then there would be subsequent phase two, three, whatever deals. And, and the Chinese had been pushing for this phased approach uh, early on. A- and the Americans had been saying, no, you have to give us everything. It's all or nothing. You can't just kind of fob us off. But back in, in the autumn of 2019, Larry Kudlow, Steve Mnuchin, and, and Bob Lighthizer agreed to, to change tack. Lighthizer is ideologically uh, a foe of China, but he's also a trade lawyer. He's also a practical guy who's trying to get a deal for a, for a client. And two things are happening. The, the market's going crazy and the election's coming up. So at that point, I think the three of them decided that they would push for a, try to get the best possible deal they could. And for the president, that was fine. I mean, because it was, focused largely on purchases, which is what he cared about in, you know, in the first place. So they made a deal. And over the past few years, everyone has been on a, a sort of journey through all this. To take the example of Lighthizer, he got to understand Liu He much, much better. He may have even come to appreciate some of his counterparts' own domestic political constraints. I mean, I think in the end, they're all searching for another Zhu Rongji you know, the Chinese premier who made concessions 
to the Americans to get China into the WTO, even though they caused a great turmoil back home with millions of people thrown out of work, you know, tens of thousands of state-owned companies folded up because Zhurongji saw that greater competition was good for China and had the political wherewithal and the support of China's president, Jiang Zemin, at that point, you know, to push through reforms. That's who they want. Uh, they want somebody like that. It, that person just doesn't exist in China any longer. So, yes, did, did Lighthizer come to understand that the Chinese political system, although quite different from the U.S. political system, is not just a monolithic Xi Jinping says yes, and he snaps his finger and everything happens. That's just not the way things work. There are all sorts of competing constituencies and rivalries just as there are in Washington. And yeah, I think this administration came into office not knowing very much about how China operates and they know quite a lot more uh, by the end of the first term. It's kind of crazy to think how different the world looks now to the way it looked, you know, back when when this deal was being signed. Um, we have COVID, we have Hong Kong. Weirdly, it looks like the phase one deal is is one of the most kind of positive things in the U.S.-China relationship, and that's a that's a pretty low bar. There are questions, though about whether some of the outcomes of this negotiation might actually be worse than if it hadn't happened at all. Here's Lingling. In China, the, the trade war over the past two years really has soured many Chinese views of the U.S., just as it, you know, many Americans' views of China have also turned drastically negative over the past two years or so. Initially, a lot of Chinese, you know, ordinary Chinese, really admired President Trump. You know, he had a lot of fans in China. They call themselves Chuanfen, which, in Chinese, which means Trump's fans, but not anymore. And some liberal thinkers also thought Trump's trade war could help them you know, help the leadership move forward with much-needed market changes to the system. But very little of that have happened. So it's like a little bit much ado about nothing. And at the same time, China has doubled down on its existing system. We're, we also documented in, in, in the book about the steps China has taken to reduce its reliance on American technology, like the new Anke project, which means secure and controllable, aimed at purging a lot of uh, Chinese businesses and government agencies of American hardware and software. And in other areas, we're seeing uh, this so-called choke point initiative, Right, the government's helping companies identify areas that are particularly vulnerable in the event that there is a U.S. sanction. So you're seeing that people in China look at this trade offensive as a wake-up call to China that the U.S. is no longer a reliable partner. That we better develop our own stuff and be more self-sufficient in that regard. So the process of negotiating this deal may have actually worsened some of the structural problems that its American negotiators had hoped to solve. And on that note, we're going to bring things to a close. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Ling Ling Wei and Bob Davis of The Wall Street Journal. Do go out and read their new book, Superpower Showdown. 
Thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're at at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because, because having, having two, two superpowers, superpowers in a showdown, in a showdown is, better is better than one. Is better than one.